You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Hey everyone, this is it. You made it. You're here. Any Tonight Show Jimmy Fallon fans out there? Anyway, I just have to throw it out. Uh, my name is Richard, and uh, the associate pastor here. And if you're joining us for the first time, it's really great to have you here as our guest. And we trust that you're going to have a meaningful experience with us. And uh, so stick around after the service. We've got some refreshments coming up. And uh, like mentioned, we're entering the season of Advent. We have four Sundays before um, Christmas. Crazy. And uh, we're going to kick off a four-week part series today called Redemption. And as we build up to Christmas, we're going to look at the uh, the story of Ruth. There's a great story in the Bible, a true story in the Bible, uh, called um, the story of Ruth. And so that's what we're going to look at in the next four Sundays. It's four chapters, four Sundays, a chapter a week. It'll take you about 25 minutes to read it once through. I'm not going to give away the whole story here, so uh, you can find it out in your own time. But um, let's uh, join me today in Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get going in, in the story of Ruth. So, Father, we thank you that, God, you're making all things new. God, that your, your plan of redemption is not thwarted. It's not been derailed. It's on track perfectly. And that we're swept up in that story of redemption and restoration. And so I pray, Lord, as we enter this season of Christmas, as we enter the story of Ruth, God, may we enter in a deeper way into your story and plan of redemption for the whole world and our lives individually. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of Ruth is really, I think, a story that you're going to connect very well with, and it resonates with a lot of us because it's the story of ordinary people really coping with life, coping with setbacks, coping with different things of life. Um, you know, it really, it's the worst of times as well in some ways. Uh, redemption, it's the thread that runs through the story and obviously connects very well with the story of Christmas, redemption, and hopefully as we go through that, that will become clearer and clearer. But really, redemption is God helps those who can't help themselves. It's not true that God helps those who help themselves. The story of the gospel and why Jesus came to the world is that we couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't get ourselves out. of the. We, we were drowning and we couldn't save ourselves by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And so take heart and encouragement today that God helps those who can't help themselves. So I'm going to read uh, from Ruth chapter 1. And, uh, and here we go. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife, his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pause there quickly. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So we're entering a story that's about 3,000 plus years old. And so it would be helpful for us to understand some stuff that's going on, right? So it, it kicks off there. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. That's key. There's a time, there's actually the book before Ruth in the Bible is called Judges. It, 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 it's, it's in this time period, and it's a time of real political, spiritual, religious unrest. 
In fact, the very last verse of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I know for some of us say, that sounds like the perfect world. That's nirvana. That's the utopia that we're heading towards. Everyone does what is right. I just want you to know, in our household, if we tried that out for a week, it would be chaos. It would be chaos. We'd be eating candy and cereal all the time. We'd be watching, we wouldn't go to school. It would just be chaos. And so the reality is, everyone doing what is right in their own sight is a setup for tragedy. And so... So this is, the, this, is the, this is the context that we find ourselves in. Not only that, there's a famine. Oftentimes, famine, oftentimes these things was a way of God's judgment coming upon particularly the nation of Israel. And so perhaps we see the hand of God in this as well, bringing about famine and turning up the temperature of our circumstances. Have you ever had that? It just, it's just getting really uncomfortable. Um, it tells us about Moab. Moab was historically a menace to Israel. It was constant, a history of conflict, suspicion. They represented the very dangers and temptations that God wanted the nation of Israel to steer away from. And so when they, when they married Moabite women, when they began to, it was always trouble. It tells us Naomi went there with her husband, but then he died. She's a widow. And in that context, again, being a widow left you in a very, very precarious and perilous situation, particularly if you didn't have family or sons to carry on and provide and take care of you. And so the, the story is deliberately setting up major tragedy here. It's, it's, a, it's a real, um, we've got to feel a bit of the, the weight of it and just not just read it. Um, it tells us as well that, uh, that she's a widow. And then later on in the story, it's going to make sense. That at the time, there was this custom, the law sometimes called the leveret marriage. And so here it was. If you're a widow, the brother, it was the marriage of a man to his brother's widow was seen as a noble thing to do, to continue the legacy of the brother, to keep the family inheritance intact, and then to make sure that there was provision for the widow. And so all these things are setting us up as we enter now the rest of the chapter story. So continuing, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for that, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, Naomi saying, there's nothing for you. I don't have other sons that, that could enter in this leverage marriage and take care of you. There's nothing. There's no future for you. If you stick with me, you're better off going back and finding, hopefully, a husband um, where you came from. And they lifted up their voices and wept and again, and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
Ruth said, see, uh, and Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if any, anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Come back next week for chapter 2. So, a few things just before we dive into some takeaways, some kind of two key takeaways as I began just reading and praying through the story for us. Just a few things. Again, let's not rush over this. The, let's not just get it intellectually. Let's feel it a bit. You see such tragedy. In, in many ways, it's a depiction. It's, a, it's, it's this one instance of this random family in the nation of Israel, you know, kind of an ordinary family, and yet they're highlighted. But it, it represents a lot of just a lot of the disappointment, setbacks, tragedy, suffering of humanity, of human life. God never intended it that way, but through our rebellion against him, we've begun to experience the, the separation from God and with what he had created as a perfect world. And now we have enmity, this struggle, this hardship. Thank God that there's coming a day where that will one day end. But right now we live in this tension of where we feel that. Maybe some of you acutely identify with the story of Ruth. You acutely identify. Maybe you have lost lots. You know, I think for many of us here in Canada, many of us set out from homelands. This is not, you weren't born here and you set out for a better life. And many enjoy that. It's the Canadian dream, so to speak. That they come and they, they're able to escape, you know, some crazy situations back home. They come in search of a better life for them, for their kids. There's a lot of hope running it. And then many find that. But I wonder if sometimes it doesn't, or it hasn't, or it's not turning out quite like you envisaged. Maybe there's been some hardship and setback and disappointment. Have you ever made, or maybe you haven't physically moved, have you ever made decisions in life thinking that these decisions were going to give you a better circumstance or turn of events only to find that it made it worse? Maybe in a relationship, in a job scenario, whatever it is, there's some human aspect that we can identify hopefully with this story. So it's a background and a backdrop of disappointment, tragedy, that we find really what is a love story as we will get on and see. And it's against this backdrop that we find this. Uh, look at Naomi's despair. I mean, let's not chastise her immediately. You know, like Naomi, have faith like Ruth and, you know. Can you imagine being husbandless? Can you imagine going off into a better future and only for after 10 years, your husband's dead, your kids are dead? Think about that for a That's just her, her heartache. You know, you can almost forgive her for feeling a little angry at God, right? You can almost feel her for feeling a bit bitter. 
towards God, thinking that God is the one who's bringing this calamity upon her. And then you contrast that all with this amazing Moabite girl called Ruth, or young woman called Ruth. Amazing. She didn't know. She didn't have the faith of Israel. She didn't know the God of Israel. But obviously during her time with the family, something happened. Amazing conversion. Look at this verse. One of the, the, the well-known verses of Ruth, if you, if you um, have any kind of biblical literacy. It says, where you go, I will go. From the NIV, it's, it's a little bit nicer. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. I mean, if that's not a classic conversion story, I don't know what it is. She's all in. You know, I wish, you know, when we, when we do, uh, when we lead people to faith, we should have this as a prayer of salvation. Jesus, where you go, I will go. Not five, six, seven years, you've done Bible college, you've done church planning school, and you're off. No, as you, as you enter into a relationship, Jesus, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people, i.e. your church is my church. If we don't get Jesus, but don't get his people. People love Jesus, but they don't like the church. It doesn't work. Jesus, the head of his body. You do, if you divorce the head from the body, that's just a grotesque monster. It's not the Savior, King, and Lord. All right? And so let's remember that. Let's speak well of his body. Uh, let's, let's pray for his body. And God, you're my God. I turn my back on the Moabite gods. I turn my back on what maybe my family thinks is best. And I, I trust in you. So her conversion is rem- remarkable. Not only is her conversion remarkable, her faith is amazing. Naomi does her best to paint the bleakest, darkest, most hopeless scenario and future for Ruth if she decides to go with Naomi. And what does Naomi say? Where you go, I'll go. It's like, are you crazy? You know, famine and faith will get you to do crazy things. Circumstances that are tough. So circumstances, famine led Elimelech to lead his family out of Israel, out of famine in search of a better future. Now, we can speculate whether he was stepping outside the will of God because they knew going into Moabite territory, it was just you're playing with fire. So whether that was a disobedience step, I don't know. I don't want to comment on that. But there's probably maybe God had a different way. But however it is, God was able even to use a redemptive, he redemptively used that. But famine caused them to do some crazy things. Leave home, leave familiarity, step out in pursuit of something. But faith will also get you to do the same thing, but the fruit is vastly different. The the faith of Ruth led her to entering into blessing with God, entering into that, the the, the step of uh, in search of a better life out of just sheer circumstances getting tough led them into some tragedy. Now, I, 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 I say that very cautiously and carefully, not to read too much into that, because sometimes, by necessity, you just got to do what you got to do. But let us be a people that's not reactive to bad circumstances, but that move forward proactively by faith. By faith. I don't know if Elimelech got on his knees and prayed, God, it's getting tough here, but do you want us to stay? Because I know the nation of Moab is not the nation that worships you. I don't know if he did that. But perhaps he ha- if he hadn't, if he had done that, maybe God would have met him in a different way. But nonetheless, faith will get you to do some crazy things. Faith will free you and give you a courage 
to leave family, to do crazy things like plant churches where there's not a lot of church people, which is why you should plant churches anyway. <laughs> um, it'll get you to leave lands, family, hard things. Faith will get you to do that. Uh, students, it'll, it'll, it'll take you on a journey that no career could ever promise you. And so in this tragedy background, we can see glimmers of just amazing God using and just the simplicity of her faith. I don't, I don't know how much she knew about God, but she didn't grow up with all the benefit of, of growing up in an Israel uh, a Jewish home where she would have been very accustomed to how God works. And yet her simple faith activated something miraculous. And so here's just two takeaways, just two very quick takeaways today. And uh, the first is prov providence which is super funny because we just prayed for providence. And uh, it's providential that we're speaking in providence. Well, my brother-in-law is here planning a church in providence, and we didn't plan that, so that's very providential. And the second thing is perspective. So just quickly want to touch on that, and then we're going to bring it, bring it home today. Providence. Providence is this really neat thing. Um, to describe it, it's, it's really the continuing work, an often unseen work of God, Sustaining his creation and uh, fulfilling his purposes so on a grand scale, but also on a micro scale. On a micro scale, I would word it like this. God's at work fulfilling his redemptive plan on my behalf for his glory and my good. Providence is God's at work fulfilling his redemptive plan on my behalf for his glory and my good. There's another verse in Romans 8, 28, which I think speaks uh, well of this as well. And it says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I love that word, all things. All things, God works for my good. What is all things? All things are the good things that you do in your life. All things are the bad things you do in your life. All things are the dumb decisions you make in your life. All things are the knee-jerk reactions and decisions you do in your life that take you down a path that you shouldn't have got. God works all things. Nothing is wasted with God. It is a, it's a really, it's a hard to wrap your mind around it, but there's a, a beautiful harmony of God's providence and sovereignty involved in our lives and our human decision-making. We see it in the story of Ruth over and over again. They make decisions, but behind it all, God's at work in a greater way that they could never have imagined. Naomi could never have imagined. She's returning to Bethlehem, broken, empty, change my name, just call me bitter. I'm going to be the bitter widow. Nothing for me. And yet, as you're going to see in the rest of the story, it's going to turn out very differently in a good way for her. And so it's a great story as well because it shows that God is involved in the ordinary, mundane aspects of our lives. You know, some of us might be sitting here like, surely God's busy with much bigger things than that he can consider the mundane aspects of my life. And it's not true. His providence tells us that he's at work. He's at work behind the scenes. Often, sometimes he lets us know what he's doing, but oftentimes we can't see the hand of God. But when you can't see the hand of God, you've got to trust his heart. When you can't, when it's hard to see the hand of God for Naomi, hard to see the hand of God in a positive sense. She saw the hand of God being the one 
against her, which really wasn't true, but that was just her perspective. We'll get into that in the second point. But it's when we can't see the hand of God, we're to trust His providential working is going on in my life and through my life. His redemptive plan and purpose is being fulfilled. And ultimately, that will give Him glory and give me joy. It's the best way for me to live. God uses time and time again trials and things on our lives, even tragedies. And he brings them all together and weaves them together to accomplish his redemptive purpose. Follow the call. If you want to follow the call, he's going to weave all these things together, the pressures and the joys of life into something beautiful as we follow him. And it sometimes takes us having our dreams shattered like Naomi for God to awaken a sense of our need for him, our longing for him. Sometimes God will be good enough. He's a good, good father. He'll sometimes be a good father that will let us have our dreams shatter in front of us. And then he'll come in and he'll cause us to cry to him. And then he can begin to restore and redemptively use that and bring about a greater plan. And we probably could never anticipate it had we pursued our dream and our call for our lives. And so providence, I want to remind you here today that the God of all providence is at work in your life. You, you might not, I, there's a spectrum of faith here. You might be still skeptical of God, and that's okay. He's still at work in your life. You know, most of us who have a relationship with the Lord can look back on our time when we didn't know God, and we can see the providential hand of God directing and using things in our lives. Because the second thing, with perspective, that you begin to see with a different perspective, you begin to see God's hand and God's working uh, in your life. And so let's look at perspective. Ted Turner, anyone familiar with Ted Turner? He's a media mogul, and he's got an est estimated value of 2.2, personal estimated value of $2.2 billion. He um, started the CNN channel and multiple other things. So Ted Turner, I want to read a little story about, about him that I found was really interesting. I didn't know much about Ted Turner, but I certainly didn't know much about his... Uh, background and faith. Um, in May 2003, Fortune magazine ran an article about Ted Turner. It was interesting because it provided some good insights into his life and particularly his spiritual life. So Ted Turner will uh, today say he's an agnostic, which, which, which means neither here nor there. There's not enough information for us to really know God or that kind of thing. So just one up from an atheist in some ways. In this article, it talked about his early life and how Ted Turner was raised in a good Christian home. He led Bible studies in his high school, was planning to become a missionary. I mean, could you just imagine that guy in the kingdom? Whew. Okay. Um, however, however, like in Naomi's family, tragedy struck the Turner family. When Ted Turner was 20, his sister contracted a rare form of lupus, suffered badly. He said he prayed for her an hour a day, asking God to heal his sister. God didn't, and his sister died. This is what he says. She used to run around in pain, begging God to let her die, he recalled. My family broke apart, I thought. How could God let my sister suffer so much? This devastated Turner and his belief in God, and he turned away from God. He says in the article, if there is a God, he is not doing a very good job, and it seems he is kind of checked out. And before we, we cast judgment on Ted Turner, let's not do that. Because that's a hard, almost impossible situation to go through. I can't imagine that. I really can't. 
And I can't say what I would do anything differently in that situation. But here's the thing. His perspective shaped it such that God was the cause of death. God was the cause of much suffering in his sister's life. God was the cause of hurting. In other words, God almost orchestrated that and brought suffering upon the family and had no compassion or empathy. And you can hear it in his words, the hardness towards God. And that although that might be a very uh, real perspective for him, it's not a true perspective. Naomi felt the same thing. God's against me. God's the one that's brought this upon me. God has made me bitter because I left full and now I'm empty. And perhaps you might be sitting here today and on some scale you might feel a little bit like that. It's just tough maybe. You lost a job or lost a loved one this year. Or 2016 for so many people as I've tried to you know, come towards the end of the year as people reflect on the year. Over and over again, a lot of people are just ready to write 2016 off and move into 2017. And maybe you're one of those people. I don't know what's going on in your, your situation, but maybe a lot of us. And maybe that's begun to affect the way that you look at God and say, God, if he's there, he's not doing a good job. He's kind of checked out of my life. He's working there. I can see him at work in there. And that person's getting blessed. And that person, but here, checked out, not interested. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe it's because I got sin or whatever. Whatever the lies, whatever the thoughts are going on. But they're powerful, right? Let's acknowledge that. Let's acknowledge that narrative that goes on in our heads. And so Naomi interprets her circumstances through a lens, a perspective, a point of view. Like we all do right now, your circumstances, whatever they mean, good and glorious or really not so good and glorious, there is a lens with which you are perceiving that, with which you are having a point of view of that. And it's so vital for us, particularly for those of us who are followers of Jesus, to have the right perspective, to have the God kind of perspective otherwise it can derail us it can shipwreck our faith it can cause us to lose hope and like all false perspectives is they exaggerate the scenario and the hopelessness the very circumstances which were tragic for Naomi with the very the very circumstances which were tragic for her, which was the cause of much bitterness and much suffering for her, were the very circumstances God was using to actually provide for her, redeem the situation. You know, without like without giving too much of the story, it ends really well for her. She is one of the great, 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 add a few more greats to the grandmother of Jesus. Her lineage, she's we're talking about her. 3,000 years later. And, but yet in that moment, her perspective blinded her to the hand of God at work in her life. And so for us here today, it's incumbent upon us to make sure we have a godly perspective. Is to have the kind of, and, and it's hard sometimes, and, and when we, we're not able to get a God kind of perspective, trust has got to kick in. When you can't see God's hand, you've got to trust his heart, that he's at work. Which leads me to another interesting thing. We're going to end with this. All of this took place, all centers around leaving Bethlehem and then coming home to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's an interesting one. Anyone see the connection with Bethlehem and Christmas? We're going to sing about that. If you haven't already started singing the Christmas carols. It's Christmas is a great time. Of year. We get all the nativity scenes out, we get all the Christmas tree out, all these cool things. I came across this. I don't know, it 
And for some of you, I hope it doesn't offend you, but I thought it's so funny of this nativity scene. If you want to buy me a gift this Christmas, this is it. Here we go. It's the, the hipster nativity scene. Not that. That. Has anyone seen that? Just take a moment to absorb that. That's our culture right now. Hey, if, and it's saying, like, if Jesus chose the 21st century modern Toronto to come, Mary would be holding her, you know, chai latte, whatever, dairy-free, something, got the selfie going. Uh, you know, I love the cow is eating gluten-free feed. I don't know if you can make that out. He's 100% organic. We've got the, all the guys kitted out in their tapered pants, looking good with his, their Amazon boxes. It has little to do with about to say, but I just wanted to throw that up there. No, it's about Bethlehem. And so now you can take that off of the strap. Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so it's interesting that the famine, there's no more bread in the house of Bethlehem. So they leave. And then she gets word that God's doing something. There's food. Let's go back. And so Christmas reminds us of another providential moment in history where God's hand was at work, but in the most obscure way. Because his redemptive plan and purpose was about to come to a pinnacle. He was about to enter human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And that his providence would be seen in the most dramatic way possible. That God and man would somehow become connected again through Jesus Christ. And so many missed it then and so many miss it now. Because you think if God as a king, as a savior would come, he would come with a bit more fanfare and triumph than having to be born in a stable, really, that was disgusting. I don't care what nativity scene you've got. It probably comes nowhere close to what the original was. You know, you need to get one of those nativity scenes where if you rub it, you just get the smell of cow dung. You know, you get the smell of dirty animals. Ever been on a farm? Farm animals stink. Like, okay, I'm not a big fan of farms. Maybe you are, but it just stinks, right? This is it. There's no room for him to be born anywhere. And so she's got to give birth in a stable, and it's obscure. And many people missed it. There was a few people that had the perspective, maybe kind of like Ruth. They were called wise men. Another word for the wise men was magi. Magi, okay, Magi, Magi, however you pronounce that, whatever. Okay, we're a, a congregation of many languages and translations, and so any which way you say something is good. Um, it's all relative here, right? Um, they, they were mysterious men. They were not part of the nation of Israel. I mean, again, they were the most unlikely people to have a revelation and, and to, to come to Bethlehem to worship the king, the savior king. And so God's providence is seen in sending Jesus to Bethlehem. And so this Christmas, regardless of where your situation is right now, regardless of what 2016 has been for you, regardless of what's going on in your life, and not maybe not seeing the hand of God, Christmas be a reminder that there is tremendous hope because God's providence is made evidence to us in Jesus Christ. His redemptive plan is at work. And it's on track. And if we align ourselves to him, we'll see it that much more. And so like Ruth, you and I were outsiders in many ways. We're not part of the promised people in that sense. We're outside of relationship with God. 
We can't get in. We're not on the inside loop. We're all, you know, Bible tells us at one stage, we're all enemies of God. We're enemies of Him. We're outside of a relationship with Him and have no way of entering back into them. But just like in that story, God redemptively works and He brings us back into Him, relationship with Him through Jesus. He enters our spiritual famine, so to speak, provides a bounty in Jesus Christ. Like Naomi, you and I were prone to be very limited in our, in our perspective, very limited in what's going on, very limited in, in understanding and perceiving rightly what's happening in our lives. And so it takes humility for us to say, I always don't have the full picture, and to trust God, trust Him, that He's a good, good Father, that He's at work on your behalf for His glory, and you're good, and you're good because He's a good, good Father. Christmas is a reminder to you and I that we too have a place to come home to. That there is something written on the inside of us that longs for home in many ways. And home is to be in relationship with God. And Jesus is the billboard to say, come home. Come home to God. Come home to that. Come home to provision. You know, it's interesting. Jesus would one day, as he was a grown man, would declare, I am the bread of life. So out of the place, the house of bread, came the very bread of life, such which if we taste of him and eat of him and enter into relationship with him, we would always and forever be satisfied. And so it's on that note that I want to close in prayer here today and anticipate the hope that we have in him, the providence and perspective that we need as we enter into the season and ask God to do that for us here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, recording these amazing stories of your working throughout history. Uh, Lord, in so many ways, there are many things for us to feel distant and disconnected from the story of Ruth, just culturally and time-wise. And yet it has tremendous relevance for us today. Because in many ways, Lord, we, we too can identify with different aspects of this story, even the tragedy and the disappointments and setbacks of this first chapter, Lord. Like Naomi, Lord, we, we often misinterpret and assign blame and bitterness to you that's really just not right and not the true story and true picture. And yet you're gracious and you're kind. You're kind and you're gracious to Naomi. Yet you're working on her behalf for her good and your glory. And Lord, we, we choose to believe today that you are at work, God. Your plan, your great and grand plan of redemption in Jesus Christ is still at work, ongoing in our lives and through our lives for your glory and our good. We choose to enter into that and believe that today, God. And that Christmas, as we lead up to the weeks of Christmas, as we sing the Christmas carols, Lord, would, it, would you help us to have this perspective, God? It's not just some quaint little baby that we sing about, but this is your providence on display for us. The Savior, King of the world, has entered in in the most inconspicuous of circumstances, the most unglamorous of ways. He enters into the most mundane, seemingly, of life. And how you want to do it again and again and again with us, enter into our ordinary lives, almost our mundane lives, our unspectacular lives, God, and bring about your redemptive purposes. 
And so if that's you today, say, yes, yes, I want to have my life aligned with that. Then just pray that and say, God, God, I want to have my life aligned with your redemptive plans and purposes. Lord, I want to receive the greatest gift of your providence in Jesus Christ. Would you come in and would you make home in me that I could come home today, that I could be at home, that I could feast on the bread of life, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forevermore. In Jesus' name, I pray. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a last chorus song, and then we're going to end with the benediction. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.